So I wonder, how do you cope with doubt? How do you cope with doubt? Particularly when you have doubts about the Christian faith. How do you cope? I remember one especially doubtful period in my life where I seemed to have far more questions than I had answers. Far more uncertainty than certainty. And my faith seemed to be shrinking rather than growing. I was 22 and I had just graduated from university and I was studying youth ministry and theology at a small Bible college in Manchester, England, just up there in the north. And I was training to be a youth pastor and it was a good school with godly teachers and I was excited to be able to attend. But as the months wore on and the workload got harder and heavier, I became more and more weary. And as the weariness crept in, so did the doubts. You see, aside from the amount of work, we were tackling some really tough questions concerning faith and scripture. And we weren't being spoon-fed the answers. I remember many evenings trudging the mile or so to my lodgings through the dark, damp English winter weather and wrestling with my doubts. And I would listen to music as I trudged through. I wonder, do you remember the personal CD player? Anyone remember those? I have an example for you right here. Yes. It is hard to believe, but I still own a personal CD player. It is not the same one that I had back then, but it was one that was um, I've already got just after I moved to the States. And uh, this one I will lend to you if you would like to have that experience again of what it's like to have a CD skip over and over again as you walk along or drive along in your car. You might remember that. Well, um, one second. Here we go. And I, so I had one just like that, and I loved it. And I would take it everywhere I went. And I tried to have the current soundtrack to my life playing as I walked. Well, at that time, I was really into a Christian band called Jars of Clay. Does anyone remember Jars of Clay? Maybe some of you do. And uh, I would um, listen to this one song in particular called Frail. And the lyrics went like this. If I was not so weak, if I was not so cold... If I was not so scared of being broken, growing old, I would be, I would be. These words struck a chord with me at the time because I felt weak and I felt cold and I felt broken. And it felt as if I was being found out for who I really was. And I didn't much like it. Well, the song carries on. Blessed are the shallow, depth they'll never find. Seems to be some comfort in rooms I tried to hide. Man, how I wanted to run back to the things I thought were simple and straightforward. I just wanted to be shallow again, to run back to the comfort of a faith that was more black and white, more straightforward. The, the Sunday school faith of my childhood, a place where there were always easy answers to the questions that I had concerning my faith. I wanted to hide in a room and avoid these new depths that were being forced upon me. But I was being broken broken of my pride and of the false self that I had created of who I was. And now I was being challenged by God to walk deeper with him, to trust him more, even as these doubts seemed insurmountable, insurmountable. Well, if we're honest, I think there are probably times in all of our lives when we face doubts, doubts concerning our future or our job 
or our relationship or our kids or a whole host of other things. But what do you do when you face doubts concerning your faith? What about when you question your very relationship with Jesus? Is he who he says he is or even does he exist? In our gospel reading today, we encounter someone who is asking similar questions, someone who has witnessed extraordinary events over the past few years of their life, but now is having doubts about the validity of everything that they've seen. And what we'll discover, though, as we dig deeper into this story, is that these doubts are actually the catalyst for something very special, and that doubt, doubt is not the end of faith, but rather the beginning. Doubt is not the end of faith but rather the beginning. So why don't we turn to our gospel reading from John and see what God would say to us through his word today. You can either follow along on the screen or pull out your Bible with your app, pull out your Bible or pull out your phone with your Bible app and just follow along. And today we're going to focus on one disciple, a man called Thomas. But before we get to him, our passage begins about a week earlier. It's the evening of that very first Easter day, the day we celebrated just last Sunday, just after Jesus has risen from the grave and the tomb is empty. And the setting is that all of the disciples, except, of course, Judas Iscariot, who sadly has committed um, suicide by then, and, of course, Thomas, they're all gathered in the upper room and they're hiding, hiding from the ruling authorities for fear of their life. And they are... Um, <laughs> it's going to happen at some stage. Now, they've already heard the report from the female disciples that Jesus has risen, but they don't really believe it. The scriptures say they think it's just an idle tale. Peter, though, goes to see for himself, and he discovers that the tomb is empty. Well, presumably, he tells the other disciples about this, but they're not exactly sure of what's happened. That all pretty uh, changes pretty soon, though, which brings us to our reading, John chapter 20 and verses 19 and 20. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Not surprisingly, once the disciples realize that this isn't a ghost standing before them, but rather the bodily resurrected uh, their Lord and their friend, they, they're overjoyed to see him. Now, because the proof's right in front of them, now they will believe the incredible story that the women have told them. Jesus is alive. Well, in verses 20 and 21 through 23, he says to them, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, we could spend just a few, uh, a few weeks unpacking just these three verses. But for now, it's worth noting that encountering the resurrected Jesus brings the disciples peace, power, and purpose. Peace, power, and purpose. And they now know that they're being called to go out with the good news of the resurrection, empowered by the Holy Spirit, sharing the forgiveness of sins, that it is freely available to all who would repent and believe in Jesus. Well, in verse 24, we finally come to Thomas and we discover that Thomas isn't with the other disciples when they see Jesus that evening, perhaps out of fear or maybe out of frustration. He disappears after the women returned from the tomb. However, the other disciples catch up with him soon enough and they share the good news. 
But Thomas is skeptical. After all, unlike them, he has not seen Jesus with his own eyes. And so in verse 25, he tells the others, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. It's because of Thomas's response that Thomas gains the rather unfortunate nickname that has persisted with him to this day. You've probably heard it. Doubting Thomas. It's even become a part of our cultural language, right? We talk of someone who's unsure of something uh, as there being a doubting Thomas. And that's unfortunate because of what transpires next. In verses 26 through 28, we read this. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus returns to the upper room about a week later, and he returns for Thomas's sake. He wants Thomas to believe in him, as he wants all people to believe in him. So he meets Thomas where he's at, both physically and spiritually. He comes to him, and he offers him the chance to do as he wishes, to put his hands on the wounds that he might experience the evidence for himself. Notice, though, it takes about a week for this to happen. It's been about eight days, and Thomas has been carrying around his doubts concerning the resurrection for some time. And Jesus doesn't rescue him immediately, but lets him dwell on them for a while. Now, we don't know why, but it does reveal to us that sometimes God allows his followers to doubt for a while. Maybe hours, maybe days, maybe weeks, maybe months. Now, though, look at the bold response Jesus' appearance gets from Thomas. Thomas, seeming without needing to touch Jesus' wounds, you may not have caught that, but it doesn't say that he does. He immediately calls out to him, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. And this is why his nickname is unfortunate. In fact, Thomas really should be called Believing Thomas. You see, he's challenged by Jesus to believe, and he does right away. And so his doubting Thomas nickname seems a little unfair. After all, remember, first of all, the other disciples had doubted when they first heard the news. The women came to them and they thought it was just an idle tale that they were telling him. Well, secondly, also remember that Thomas, he's just looking for some evidence. What is wrong with looking for evidence? The reality of the resurrection may seem old hat to us because we've read it and we've heard it over and over again. But this was stunning news at this stage. And so why would it be wrong to look for evidence? I think all believers should have their faith grounded in evidence and not blind belief. And then notice that Thomas is the first person in the Gospel of John to address Jesus as God. This is an incredible statement of faith, something no other disciple has yet said to him. And then there's one more thing. There are, in fact, fairly reliable accounts that Thomas, like all of the other disciples, went out and shared the good news of the resurrection with others. It's believed that Thomas took the gospel as far east as India, and there he died as a martyr. And today you will still find communities of Christians who trace their lineage all the way back to Thomas. And he does this so that, as Jesus says in verse 29, those who haven't seen may believe. And as John writes in verse 31, so that all who believe in Jesus 
may have life. The life to the full that Jesus promises in John 10.10. Friends, I believe that Thomas's doubt doesn't become an issue in his life because he deals with it in a healthy way. Not running away from it, not hiding it, but expressing it and seeking answers to his questions, something that is not contradictory to having faith. And because of this, he grows in his faith. And the same can be true for us. As one theologian once said, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. Doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It is an element of faith. You see, when we deal with our doubts in the right way, they help us to go deeper in our faith and they motivate us to share that well-founded faith with others. With newfound confidence, we become more determined that the news we have to share is essential for all people. What about you, though? How do you deal with your doubts? And do you have doubts about who Jesus is or about his resurrection? Do you wonder if he really can be trusted? Often these doubts or seasons of doubting, as I experienced and Thomas experienced, are brought on when we face moments of crisis. Perhaps a marriage that isn't all that you had hoped it would be, maybe a serious health issue that you weren't expecting, financial difficulties that are causing incredible stress, maybe struggling with addiction or losing your job or even losing a loved one. What we learn from Thomas, though, is that the doubts we face aren't unusual and they're not insurmountable, however difficult they may seem at the time. And we also see that isolating ourselves during these times is not the answer. Notice that he isn't there when Jesus first meets with the disciples, but he is there the second time. It's possible that at first Jesus' death, which would have been a huge crisis point for all the disciples, was just too much for Thomas to handle. And so he isolated himself for a while. But as one writer puts it, we are always more likely to find Jesus in the company of the faithful than in a lonely vigil. Are you isolated or do others know the questions that you have? Who are the dozen or so brothers and sisters in the Lord that you can call upon when you're facing great doubt and struggles in your faith? Notice that Thomas returns to his brothers by the end of the week. He knows where to go. But what about you? I challenge you, if you're not already a part of some weekly small group, studying God's word, praying together, serving together, living life together, that you need to be. Every Christian needs to be. These are people who will help you encounter Jesus even in the midst of the most difficult of times. And also, are you a regular part of the larger church body, making weekly worship together a priority over other things? J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican bishop, once wrote this, How much Christians may lose by not regularly attending gatherings of God's people. The very sermon that we needlessly miss may contain the message our souls need. The very assembly for praise and prayer from which we stayed away may be the very gathering that would have cheered, established, and uplifted our hearts. We experience this uplift through hearing God's word through worshipping him together, but also in a profound and mysterious way, we encounter Jesus as we break bread together in the sacrament of Holy Communion. We shouldn't take this weekly practice uh, for granted. Something's happening as we gather here around this table and eat of his body. Here we find forgiveness, 
Here we find joy. Here we find confidence and strength and courage to go out and to serve him over and over again. Here we find his grace. Here we find his mercy. And here we're made one with him and with each other. And we're reminded of what he went through. The agony of rejection and the suffering of the cross. We're reminded that Jesus knows what we're going through and he understands it. Jan Martel, um, who wrote the award-winning book, The Life of Pi, not sure if you ever read The Life of Pi or saw the, saw the movie, but it is a fantastic book. Well, Martel, the author, once said these profound words, Doubt is useful for a while. We must all pass through the Garden of Gethsemane. If Christ played with doubt, so must we. If Christ spent an anguished night in prayer, if he burst out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then surely we are also permitted to doubt. But we must move on. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. I read that again. To choose doubt as a philosophy of life is akin to choosing immobility as a means of transportation. You see, doubt, when not dealt with in healthy ways, is crippling. It can stop us dead in our tracks. Yes, we all have our doubts at times, but like Thomas, we need to confront them, seeking answers to our questions and our fears, and not in isolation, but with fellow believers, using these doubts as a catalyst to spur us on to, be, uh, to grow deeper in our faith. And as we do this, I believe that we will encounter the living Jesus and we will be encouraged to go out and confidently share our faith with others in order that those who haven't seen might see and believe and have life to the full. For me, that experience almost 25 years ago built a firm foundation for being a witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Painful as it was, I was pressed as I pressed into my brokenness and my doubts within a community of faith, I discovered, much like Thomas, who Christ is and that he's for me and not against me. And that through his pain and his suffering shown for me upon the cross, I could know true peace. When you encounter brokenness and doubts, may you also do the same and may you be strengthened to confidently witness to the power of Jesus revealed through his resurrection. Who will you share the gospel with this week? Who will you tell? Who will you tell the good news of Jesus confidently because of the sure foundation of the evidence for the proof of the resurrection? Who will you tell that good news to, friends? It's not meant to be hoarded and kept to ourselves. Share the gospel Tell others of the resurrection and of the life that he offers to each and every one of us who will repent and believe in him. Let's pray. Peace be with you, said Jesus to the disciples over and over again. Peace be with you before praying that his Holy Spirit would fill them. Today, friends, would peace be among us. Would God's peace reside within you as his Holy Spirit enters within you and gives you his peace his power, and his purpose, that you, when you encounter doubts, might press in and grow in faith rather than shrivel up and die, that you might build a confident platform for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the hope of the resurrection and the defeat of sin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.